Welcome to the Awaken Life Church podcast. For more information about our church, please visit awakenlifechurch.net. We hope you enjoy this message by Daniel Willett. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's give the Lord a hand. He's amazing. Yes, Father God. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Wow. Let's just take a minute. Just close your eyes for a minute. Oh, Father. Jesus, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. You're so good. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your blood. We thank you that we got to just celebrate you in communion this morning. Your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. Jesus, we're overwhelmed by what you did for us on the cross. And we receive fully your grace this morning. We receive your goodness. Father, we receive sonship this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Take us deeper and deeper and deeper, Lord. God, we just pray for grace, grace, grace over this message this morning. We just declare glory, 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 God. Jesus, we just pray that you're taking us deeper and deeper this morning into grace and into sonship. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. I have to say happy birthday to uh, my friend Joseph. Where did he go? Did he leave? Is he in the children's? He's probably in the children's. Okay. Say happy birthday to Joseph when you see him. <laughs> and get, get a hug from Joseph. He has like the father's love in his hug. It's, I'm serious. Just like, that's a guy you want to get a hug from. He just, it's an anointed hug. So happy birthday, Joseph. He'll have to watch it on the live stream. So good morning. Um, I just want to make some prophetic declarations over you this morning. I just believe that um, God is breaking off shame today. I just declare over you, God is breaking off shame. God is breaking off guilt. God is breaking off performance-based Christianity today. Thank you, Jesus. And God is breaking the spirit of religion. I just declare God is taking you into a, a deeper level of sonship today, and you're going to experience the grace of God today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, I just believe God's imparting greater levels of sonship and the spirit of grace today. So I'm going to jump right into the word. <clears throat> Mark chapter 16. We have it for the screens. Um, actually, maybe I don't think I gave you that one, actually. Mark 16, 15 through 18. Sixteen. Mark 16, 15 through 18. So this is the last recorded words of Jesus that were recorded by Mark. So there's different, if you look at all the Gospels, and you look at the last words that each, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, that they recorded of Jesus, they're all, they all highlight different things. But this is the last words of Jesus in the book of Mark. So verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Sounds like revival culture to me. So go back to verse 15. It says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. 
So Jesus asked us to preach the gospel to all creation. But what, it, what is the gospel? So let's just start with that. Like, what does the word gospel mean? Somebody shout it out. Good news. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. So I'm always cautious if I hear somebody preaching or if I hear somebody talk about God and it sounds like bad news. The word, <laughs> the word gospel itself means good news. So when I, hear, when I hear something preached or I hear people talking about God and it sounds like this is not good news, I'm, I always pump the brakes a little bit and say, wait a minute, the gospel is good news. It is radical good news. So it doesn't mean that God doesn't challenge us. We know that. It's all throughout scripture. We see that. But the gospel message itself is amazing and powerful, radical, good news. It is powerful. So when you hear the gospel preached in its purity, your spirit will leap with excitement. That's why it's okay to say, let's go in church. <laughs> it's okay to say, amen. It's okay to be excited. Uh, I love Steve Backlund. He, he talks about, he's like, uh, I used to be so serious in church. And if someone was too excited, I just thought, well, they don't get it. Because if they really got it, they'd be, they'd be sad like me right now. <laughs> the gospel will make your spirit leap. Or if you have some critters, if you have some Klingons on you, it might make your spirit, it might make you shrink away. We had an experience like that in evangelism yesterday. It's funny, people's reaction to the gospel. When you're preaching the gospel, um, it's so powerful. You see the Holy Spirit come and you see people's reaction to it. Like, wow, this is like, it's unbelievable. It's radical good news. Or if you preach to someone who's got some critters going, they might try to run away from you. There's a few Klingons. That's okay. God can deal with those. So the gospel itself is amazing and powerful good news. So to contrast, I've been reading and, and uh, studying the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Say that right. Nehemiah. And... Um, just to give you a really super quick nutshell of, of this book, God puts it on Nehemiah's heart to go back to Israel and to rebuild the walls that have been torn down, rebuild the, uh, the, the walls and, and the gates that have been burned. And he goes back and with God's help and like all these people just come to help him, he rebuilds these walls and he does it in like 52 days, which is an absolute miracle. And after he does this, they're all congregated together, and it, this should be this amazing celebratory moment. They did something like that no one thought was possible. They rebuilt these walls, and instead, um, Nehemiah says, or Nehemiah says, Ezra, come on out. I want you to read the law to the people. And so he comes out, and he reads the law, and people start to weep. And it's not out of, oh, this is so touching. It's out of sorrow. They're crying. They're like deep sorrow, and so much so that Nehemiah actually tries to console them. He's like, well, you know, this is a good day. This is a holy day. Like, don't, don't cry. <laughs> but what, a, what an amazing contrast. When the law is, was preached by Ezra, people start to weep in sorrow. But when the gospel is preached, when we see this in Acts chapter 2, people are amazed and they, and they get saved. Big contrast between when we preach the law and when we preach the gospel. 
So when the law was given through Moses, he comes down off the mountain, his face is shining, and he presents the Ten Commandments. 3,000 people died that day. The earth opened up and swallowed 3,000 people, and they died right there on the spot. When Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people get saved. You see the contrast. That's why the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. Now, when you look at it, look into that scripture, and we're going to do that in a second. It's talking about the letter of the law. It's not even talking about scripture. I used to think that. It meant like, well, the letter without the Holy Spirit, it produces death. I think that's true. But it's talking about specifically in this passage, specifically the law. It says the law, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit brings life. Let's read it. Second Corinthians three. We're going to read four through 10. So now this passage contrasts law versus spirit. It contrasts old covenant versus new covenant. I love it. Jill was talking about the new covenant today. We took communion. So I think we have this for screens. Verse four, it says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. That's the new covenant. We don't have confidence in the old covenant. We have confidence in the new covenant. Such Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Verse five, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. This is the new covenant. Verse six, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse seven, but if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones, what's it talking about? The law, letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. So it's talking about the moment when we just talked about Moses comes down, he presents the law, says, if that had a measure of glory, how will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation law has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness, grace, abound in glory. For indeed, we had Uh, What had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. So this passage, it it talks about the law and it talks about the the old covenant and it talks about what we have now in grace and in the spirit. So it says this of the law and the old covenant. It says the letter kills. It's, It's the letter that kills. It says it's the ministry of death. It says it's the ministry of condemnation. And it says it has no glory, has no more glory. Then it talks about the spirit and it says, we have confidence. We are adequate as servants of the new covenant. It says the spirit gives us life and it calls it the ministry of righteousness. Ministry of righteousness. Why is this so important? This has been so on my heart. We need to make sure that we're ministers of grace of the new covenant and not ministers of death, putting people under the burden of the law. The old covenant makes, it's the old covenant that makes us feel condemned and adequate, and it has no glory. It has no glory. Now, if we preach a little bit of grace and we preach a little bit of law, this is called mixture. 
and they don't work together because you can't put new wine and old wineskins. Both are ruined. So when it doesn't even make sense when you preach Jesus did it all, and we're singing songs today like, like Lord, it's all about you. You, you did it all. And, and we declare that, and then we put the burden of the law on people and say, but you better, but you got to. It's mixture, and it, and it doesn't make sense. People run away from God all the time from this. They're like, this doesn't make sense. These don't go together. If you put new wine and old wineskins, it ruins both. So likewise, if you understand, and I've, I've been there, and I catch myself here, Still at points, if you understand a little bit of grace, but you also put yourself under the weight of the law, it will taint the power of grace in your life. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and it's what empowers us to do everything that he's called us to do. And when we put ourselves under the weight of law, it taints the power of grace in our life. This is good stuff today. I hope you're getting this. (laughs) I'm preaching so good. Oh, man, the gospel is radically good news. It is radical, radical, radical good news. The message today is called culture of grace, culture of grace. This phrase has been just rolling around in my, in my heart for the last few weeks. And I've, I've just been like, Lord, what, is, what does this mean? What do you want me to do with this? And, and, and I don't even know fully what it is yet. But it's, there's something like where the Lord's saying like, I want you to go beyond preaching grace and teaching grace, and I want you to live out of a culture of grace, and I believe prophetically that we're going to be exporters of this revelation of grace that changes everything. I want to tell you a little bit about my own story. I, was, I grew up in church. I was saved at 12, kind of walked away from the Lord at 18. I didn't really uh, lose my faith, but I just went on my own way, and at uh, age 26, I rededicated my life to Christ. And in 2010, I started to get the revelation of grace, and it changed everything. It changed everything. It changed the way I read the Bible. It changed the way I saw myself. It changed the way I prayed. It changed the way I saw other people, and it changed the way I saw God. It was, it was such a game changer in my life. It's Aside from rededicating my life and the miracle that God did in my heart when I did that, it's probably the second most impactful thing that's ever happened to me in my life. So it's changed everything. And this is what's on my heart for our community. We need to go beyond the teaching and preaching of grace, and we need to make sure we're creating and cultivating a culture of grace. So we want to be a culture that trusts in the true gospel to set people free and not put the burden of the law on people that produces death. I love the church. So I'm, I'm really careful about how I'm going to say what I'm going to say next. I love the church. The church is bride of Christ. So we need to be careful speaking against Jesus' bride. I love the church. And this is just my experience. Maybe you've had different experience, but what I've seen in the church at whole, as a whole is I've seen more of a culture of performance and not a culture of grace. There's definitely pockets where that's happening. But I've seen more of a culture of performance. Christ doesn't want his bride to perform for love. 
We are the bride of Christ. Christ doesn't want his bride to perform for love. A culture of performance says this. You have to perform for your salvation and or to maintain your salvation. You have to perform for God's love or God's favor. And sometimes this is subtly being sown. It may not be directly said where someone's saying, you have to perform for God's love, but it's preached in a way where the message that's being sent is, you have to perform to maintain your salvation. You have to perform to make sure God's gonna favor you. You have to perform for this, for that. You have to perform for, to become holy. A lot of holiness teaching is just performance-based Christianity. If you do this, you become holy. I love George and Banoff's, I think I talked about this before, but in his book, Joy, he talks about his holiness checklist. And he said, I had a holiness checklist. And he's like, I, I felt like if I did the checklist well enough, that's what made me holy. And he's like, you know, I pray, I read my Bible, I take communion, and he had all these things. And one day he's reading Romans chapter 6. In the King James, it says, uh, Romans 6, it says, now reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Georgian, holiness doesn't come from your checklist. Holiness comes from reckoning. Reckon yourself to be dead. When you reckon yourself, it's saying that holiness comes from what you believe, what you think. Like, I am dead to sin because I'm in Christ. How many know that if you are in Christ, you are holy? You are holy. You can't be in Christ. Can Christ be in you if you're not holy? No. He's made you holy by what he did. And when we try to clean up and try to be holy, try to be good enough to earn our holiness... It's like, I, I believe it grieves God's heart. He's like, I've, did, I've done it for you. I've made you holy. Holiness is not performing well for God. I have five kids. <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> and I don't, yes, five is the number of grace. And I don't want any of my children to feel like they have to perform for my love. I don't want them to feel like they got to perform for favor from me. I want all my kids to know I love you already completely and wholly. Just, just like you are. You have my full favor right now. You have my full love. You can't get more than full. Full is full. And so I know, I know that this, my heart is not different than the parents that are here. All of us feel that about our children. We're like, yeah, that's, that's the way I want my kids to think, that I just love them, and they don't have to earn my favor. They don't have to earn my love. I just love them because they're my kids, not because of what they do. But somehow we can believe that this will start unearthing some strongholds. We can believe that, but we put God in a place where we feel like we have to earn our love, earn his love, or that we have to earn his favor. And we subconsciously, we're thinking we're better parents than God is. 
we're actually, I'm a better father than he is. If, if, I, if, I don't, if I give my kids unmerited favor and if I love them unconditionally, but I put on, project onto God that I have to do something to get his love, that can really mess with your head. That can really hurt your theology, what you believe about God. The most legalistic being in the universe is Satan. I've got to see this firsthand. Got to see it again this past couple weeks ago. But there was, I'll just share a little bit of the story. This, some of you remember this. Some of you were here for this. But about four or five years ago, there was a man who, uh, in our greeting time, started manifesting. Imagine we're just doing our greeting time, everybody's talking, and all of a sudden someone starts screaming in demonic tongues and speaking like the demon was speaking through this guy. And uh, I learned a lot. I'm not going to give you the long version of the story. I'm going to give you the shorter version, but I learned so much that day. This is, I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. I don't think I've ever shared this part. Actually, when I was playing guitar and worshiping this day, I had this thought that came to my mind, and it was this, you're not a good guitar player. This was the thought. What are you doing? Like, let somebody else play. You're not very good. And I just was like, what's, what's this weird thought? And when this guy manifested, when we were, we were trying to cast the demon out, he looked right at me and he goes, you're not a good guitar player. I was like, oh, now I know where that voice was coming from. I've had, and this happened a week ago. I'll, I'll protect the person. You don't know him, but I'll protect the situation. But I had a, I had a thought in my in my heart, and someone manifested and yelled out the thought that I was having. Is the spirit of religion rose up in someone. And I was like, oh, Lord, forgive me. I was like, I recognized it immediately. I was like, that's the spirit of religion. And I was like, yep, still sometimes it's creeping up in me. Man, just outed myself. You still love me? It went down just a little. <laughs> That's right. It's on the outside trying to get in. The most legalistic being in the planet's the enemy. So in this moment with this guy, and he's manifesting, and we're casting out the demon, every time the demon would speak, it was reasons why he couldn't get free, legalistic reasons why he couldn't get free. He can't get free because X, Y, Z. He likes this. He likes that. He's into this. He's addicted to this. This is why he can't get free. And all these things had power in his own life because there's the lies that he believed. We've been reading about Kenneth Hagin. Uh, we've been reading his life story to our kids. And um, I don't know if you know this, but when he was like 13 or 14, he was bedridden, couldn't get out of bed. For 18 months, he was, all he could do is stare at the ceiling. Uh, the doctor said he's, he's going to die. Nobody lives from the condition he had. He's going to die. It's just a matter of time. They already planned his funeral. They knew who the pallbearers were going to be. They knew who, where it was going to be at. They knew who's, what songs were going to be sung. They had written him off. Even the pastor came to his house and said, he patted him on the back and said, it's all going to be over soon. And he heard him in the other room talking about, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pray for you guys because your son's going to heaven. And he grabbed onto this scripture, Mark eleven twenty four. He would read the Bible, and it says, Mark eleven twenty four says this. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. 
and he started to declare the scripture. He could barely talk. He couldn't speak. He's laying in bed. All he can do is stare at the ceiling. And in his mind, he would just declare the scripture. God, you said, you said, you said, if I say it, I can have it. And I say that I'm healed. And he goes, God, if, if I'm not healed, I'm going to tell my Bible to throw, I'm going to tell my family to throw the Bible in the trash. He goes, you said, and if you said it, I believe it. And he said, the Lord, he did this for months, just staring at the ceiling saying, God, I believe that I'm healed. And he said, God taught him the difference between hoping for something and believing for something. See, if you hope for something, you're waiting for it to happen. And you're like, I hope this is going to happen. And when I see it, then I'll, then I'll act into it. But if you believe something, you, you already step out in action. You're like, no, I believe this is true and I'm going to act in it. I always have lots of thoughts going through my head, trying to figure out which ones to say and which ones not to say. <laughs> so one day, he had the revelation. He said, well, if I believe that it's true, that means that I need to get out of bed. And he couldn't walk. His legs had zero feeling. He said, I'm going to get out of bed today. So he like moved himself around and he said, all the while, while he's trying to move and he's trying to get out of the bed, the enemy starts speaking. That's not what that verse means. That verse is not about physical healing. That verse is only about spiritual things. It's saying that you can, you can uh, have anything that you believe spiritually you can have, not physically. And he recognizes the voice of Satan. It's the most legalistic voice on the planet. He says, no, I don't believe that. That's not what it means. It means I can actually be well. And he props himself up and he puts his legs on the ground and makes himself stand up and he starts to feel feeling come into his legs for the first time in 18 months. Feeling comes into his legs and he said, that day I got up, went out to the breakfast table and had breakfast. And he said, I never didn't get out of bed after that. But I told you that story to tell you that like the enemy is the most legalistic voice you're ever going to hear. Sometimes we pin that voice on God. He could have pinned that voice on God. God, is this you telling me this is not physical? This is only just a spiritual thing trying to rob his healing. So the enemy's job is to constantly try to distort the truth or taint the message of grace. We are called to preach the gospel to all creation. But this is what's been on my heart. Sadly, I believe that much of the church only has part of the message. Much of the church only has part of the message. We get that Jesus died on the cross and he paid the price for our salvation. But so much of the church put people under the burden of the law or performance right after they get saved. Grace isn't just a subject like you know, we could talk about like, let's have a prophetic class. Let's have a, a healing class. Let's have a, a grace class. But really the grace class should be called the gospel because grace is the gospel. I'm going to show you in the scripture. It's Acts chapter 20, verse 24. We have it for the screens, I believe. It says, but none of these things move me. This is Paul talking. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Grace 
is the gospel. And once you get the revelation of grace, you'll see Paul shouting it from the rooftops over and over again, saying, guys, it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. Who has bewitched you? Um, all, all throughout his writings, you see grace, 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 grace. Grace is the gospel. So I want to dissect a passage of scripture this morning. I, I think it's often misunderstood, and I think it'll be helpful for us. It's Mark chapter 7. I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So this is Jesus speaking, our Savior. Jesus says this, enter through the narrow gate. Actually, before I read this, I want you to take note of the words, two words, gate and way. These two words, take note of the words gate and the words way. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Okay, so the, the word gate is mentioned three times. It talks one time about the wide gate that leads to destruction. It talks two times about the narrow gate that leads to life. And the word way is mentioned two times. It talks once about the broad way that leads to destruction. It talks once about the narrow way that leads to life. Okay, how many know we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture? Otherwise, if we're in, interpreting Scripture without letting Scripture interpret itself, we can project all kinds of things that are really just our dirty lens of understanding of who God is. We can interpret Scripture through a lens of condemnation and shame and guilt and performance. But Scripture actually interprets itself, and it interprets itself in this Scripture, I believe, really well. So I'm going to show you two scriptures, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want to show you one more, John 10, 9. I am the gate. <laughs> Whoever enters through me will be saved. It will come in and go out and find pasture. I want to tell you a story. This is a lady who's a, a friend of my dad's in Michigan. And I was talking to her. This was about three or four years ago. And this, this lady loves Jesus. I mean, like, loves Jesus. Her house is a, a Jesus museum. There's like Bibles and crosses and scriptures and, and she like has such a heart for Jesus, loves Jesus. And she talked to me about this scripture. She said, you know what? That scripture really scares me. She talked to me about Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where it says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. She goes, that verse scares me. She goes, how do I know? How do I know if I'm on the narrow road? How do I know if I've done enough? 
to be on that narrow road or if I'm deceived and I'm on the broad way to destruction. This lady loves Jesus. She's like, I'd have her pray for me any day. And she's like, how do I know if I've done enough? I said, I have really good news for you. <laughs> I said, Jesus says in scripture that he is the, both the way and the gate. I said, the narrow way is Jesus Christ. There's, in this culture that we live in, there's so many voices that are going to say, there's so many different ways to get to heaven. You can go through Buddha. You can go through New Age. You can create your own truth. You can go through Hinduism. There's many ways. Jesus had the audacity to say, I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man enters unless it's through me. Muhammad didn't say that. None of those other people said that. Jesus said that. Buddha didn't say that. Jesus said, I'm the only way. And I told her, I said, this scripture is not about trying hard enough to be on the narrow road. This scripture points to the world and says, Jesus Christ is the only way to get to God. He is the narrow way. He is the narrow way. Two months later, she called me and she goes, you don't know what you did for me. When you told me that, she goes, I had such a burden lift off of me. She said, I felt so free in the last two months since you told me that. God doesn't want the bride to think she has to perform for salvation. God doesn't want the bride to think she has to perform for love, to stay in his good graces. God loves the bride. Jesus loves his bride. And he doesn't want the bride to be in this mode of performance, trying to be good enough. This verse is not written to Christians to tell them to toe the line. That's called works-based salvation. We either believe in a grace-based salvation that has nothing to do with us except for our acceptance of it. It has everything to do with Jesus. We either are going to live under a works-based salvation or we're going to believe in a grace-based salvation that takes all the attention off of us and puts it all on Jesus. No one's going to get to heaven and say, wow, I'm so glad that I worked hard enough to get here. I'm so glad that I did enough. Ephesians 2 8 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The second that you put a condition on a gift, it leaves the gift column. It no longer becomes a gift. A, a true gift doesn't have conditions on it. The second you put a condition on a gift, it's no longer a gift. Salvation is a gift. It's a free gift from God. This verse was not written to Christians to tell them to toe the line. This verse is written to the world that tell them that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to God. There is no other way. I want to read one more passage. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 3. This is Paul speaking again. It says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
that really stood out to me last time. See, I believe that that uh, spirit of religion and the spirit of performance is actually witchcraft. He says, who's bewitched you? By the way, the spirit of religion, it's just as nasty of a demonic spirit as a murderous spirit. Every demonic spirit has the goal to kill, steal, destroy. Sometimes we look at a spirit of religion, we kind of laugh and we think it's not as vile as other ones. It's just as vile. It produces death. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It's actually talking to some people who witnessed Jesus die on the cross. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Again, that's called works-based salvation. He's saying, do you think that you didn't do anything to earn your salvation? Are you so foolish to think that now you, you got in as a free gift and now you have to work to maintain the free gift? Does that make sense? Are you now being perfected by your flesh, by what you do? Works-based salvation. We need to be very careful because it was so subtly here preached and I'm like, oh, that's works-based salvation. It's either works-based or it's all on Christ. Either he did it 100% or I got to do 1% to get myself the rest of the way. And that's called mixture. and produces death and it taints grace. Say it again. No one's going to get to heaven and say, wow, I'm so glad I made it because of what I did. We're going to celebrate for eternity and celebrate Jesus because of what he did. Because of what he did. I love this story I read. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called My Time in Heaven. And it's about a guy who has a heaven encounter. And he talks about going into this stadium. He's like, it's a bigger stadium than anything on earth. There's like hundreds of thousands of people in there. And Jesus walks in on this stage and the place goes crazy. He's like, everybody goes nuts. It's Jesus, Jesus. Like the place goes crazy. Why? Because of what he did. Not because of what we did. Otherwise we get to heaven and celebrate us. Oh, I'm so glad I did enough. We're going to get to heaven and celebrate Jesus because of what he did. <laughs> Jesus, man, the message is so much better than we make it. God is so much better. We need to have, I love Bill Johnson. He wrote the book called God is Good. He's like, this has to be the beginning of our Faith, right here. God is good. So when you hear preaching, when you hear people talking, and it doesn't sound like, huh, that doesn't fit inside, God is good. And be careful what you receive when you, hear, when you feel that feeling. Okay, I forgot to do this earlier, but Angela, would you come up, stand in the front? Um, Tina, and also Diane, could you come up? There's been many, many, many times in my life where I've slipped back into performance and, and I've had to renew my mind with grace all over again. I'm like, whoa, I did it again. Yep, I'm back thinking I'm performing. Like, I feel good when I do good. 
and I feel bad if I'm not doing enough. That's called workspace, performance-based Christianity. And I've done it many times. I'm like, Lord, help me. I need this message to be really deep in my heart because I want to do everything for you out of a spirit of sonship. I don't want to do anything because I feel like I have to earn something. A son will always do so much more than a slave. And someone who's working, earning, a son will go way farther. A slave does just enough to not get punished. And many people, and I say this with the fear of the Lord and with compassion for these people, and I've been there myself, many people are saved, they're going to heaven, but they put themselves in a slave mentality where they feel like they have to work for God and earn something for God, and it grieves the heart of God. It grieves the heart of God because Jesus paid such a deep, deep, deep price to make us sons, to let us come into this place of grace where we can do everything out of a response of love to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want his bride to perform. He wants his bride to know how loved she is and respond to him in love. And that's where it's really beautiful. That's where what we get to do on earth, we are created for good works. And when we have the sonship thing, it starts to flow out of us from this heart of love. And it's so powerful. It's so much better than trying to work for the Lord. I've been there. So I want you to be bold this morning. I want you to be brave. If you want guilt, shame, condemnation, spirit of religion broken off you, stand to your feet. I'm going to ask you just to come forward. Go ahead and put on some music, please. Just soft, soft music. Go ahead and start coming forward. Just come up to the altar. We're going to release grace <laughs> this morning. Now, I, the reason I had these four people or come up, these three, and then I'm going to pray as well, is because I know these four people, I, myself and the three, and I know that we've fought for this message. <laughs> I know that we've had to stand in hard moments, and a lot of us grew up in this shame-based culture, and I know that we've had to fight like to say like, no, Lord, I'm not doing the performance thing. And we've had to come back to it again and again and again and again. And I can just tell you, each time that I've just went back into performance and I'm like, oh, I've done it again. And I start to step back into grace. It's just deepened and deepened and deepened and deepened to where it's like, you start to have this feeling to where it's like, you really, like I, one of the breakthroughs for me is I start to feel really deep compassion for people who are put themselves under the law. I used to be really frustrated with those people. And I think one of the turning points for me is when I stopped being frustrated with them and I'd feel deep compassion because, man, the law is such a burden to carry that we don't have to carry. Christ carried the burden for us. And so we're just going to release grace over you this morning. I believe in prayer from powerful people, and these are powerful people. And we're just going to go around for a moment. We're going to release the spirit of grace and we're going to break the spirit of performance today. <laughs>